Well, thank you, Scott and, and Clay and Max, for leading our thoughts and our prayers and our uh, song service this morning. Uh, sometimes when I get up to preach, I'm really excited about the message, and other weeks I'm nervous about the message, and some weeks I think, I don't really want to preach this today. Well, <laughs> this is one of those days, but it's not exactly for the reason that you might think. You might think, well, it's two days before the election, surely there's nerves there, and you, you know, maybe he doesn't want to preach that message. But that's not why I don't really want to preach this particular message. I wrote this message before the ice storm, and the message is about anger. And uh, <laughs> I, like Scott, and many others in the room, haven't have, ha- had power since, since Monday. And i got to be honest, like, I'm so sick of it. I'm so tired of it. I've had many, many moments throughout the last few days where I just think about Ogini. And these thoughts are not positive thoughts. Like, I'm so ready for this to be over. So, you might not need to hear this sermon, but I confess that I need to hear this sermon. So, uh, about a month ago, I'm driving west on Memorial Road, about to hit Brahms. I'm approaching Bryant. And these two boys are on their bikes, and they're coming out of the neighborhood, uh, riding their bikes south and they come right up to Memorial Road, just inches from getting in the street, and I am in the right lane, and so I'm wanting to get over, but I look left, and there's a car right next to me, and so I can't get over, and these boys, and I don't know who you are, you might be in the room, but they, they just stop right before they hit the road, and I do what probably a lot of you would do. I get just super mad at these boys. I start yelling in the car, what is wrong with you? Why would you do that? You could have died, and just I'm getting pretty, pretty upset, and I go on for a little while, and then about the time we hit Brahms, I'm looking in my rearview mirror, trying to glare at these boys as if that's helpful, <laughs> but I don't see the boys. I see Heidi, and she's in the back seat, and her eyes are really big, and she has this look like, where is my dad? What have you done with my dad? And she says, Dad, why are you yelling? And I say, why well, did you see those kids? They almost ran into the road, and I could have hit them, and what, what's wrong with them? And I just kind of go off again. And then she says something very simple, yet very profound. She says, Dad, but they can't hear you. (laughs) And I can hear you, Dad. And I don't like it. Oh, man, that was a really good thought from Heidi. See, the big challenge with anger is anger nearly always causes collateral damage. It's just the way it works. And if there was ever a year where anger would rise to the surface more than other years, it would be the year 2020. In fact, I want to read you this little excerpt from this article that Elizabeth Chang wrote. Uh, the, the, the title is fantastic. The title is this, Americans are living in a big anger incubator. That's how she describes this year. And then she just lists out all the things that potentially could make us mad this year. Racism, civil unrest, police violence, rioting, anger at public officials because they've shut society down, anger because they aren't doing enough to curb the virus, anger at being required to wear a mask, anger towards people who refuse to wear a mask, anger at anyone who doesn't see things the right way. And then I would also add to her list, anger at electrical companies. So there's just a whole lot of reasons to be angry this year. And, and the big problem with anger is that the, the one who suffers the most when it comes to anger is not the object of your anger. 
but the subject of your anger. So you might be mad at a person or a situation, but that person or situation, they're not negatively impacted by your anger. That, that would be the object of your anger. The one who's harmed the most is actually the subject. Like those boys, they weren't harmed by my anger, but I was. I'll give you another example. Uh, earlier this year, someone said something to me that really bothered me. It offended me. It upset me. I felt attacked. And I was so angry about it that what I did is I just went to bed and I just stared at the ceiling till 2.30 in the morning because I was mad. Whereas the person that had made me mad was sleeping. And so the strange thing about anger is that it affects the one who is angry more than the person that, they, that, that we are angry at. And, and you know how this goes. Someone says something to you and it just kind of irks you and then you find that 10 hours later you're thinking about the same thing when you know that the person is not thinking about it. Or maybe someone uh, posts something online and you read it and you think that is so ignorant, that is so arrogant, that is so hateful. How could anybody write that? And then you find that it really like takes your day down to a really bad level. Like it just kind of sucks the energy out of your soul. And so you find that several hours later, you're still thinking about this post. Well, at that point, when you're talking five or six hours later, it's not the post that's affecting you. It's your anger. It's your anger towards the post. And so here's, here's what I want to challenge you with this week. This is a great week to, to, to take an anger challenge. I want you to think about this week as an opportunity to work on your anger. Think about it like an anger exam. And so maybe it's possible that you and I, together with the Holy Spirit, together with the power of community, together with the power of Scripture, can actually walk through this week that many people have been anticipating all year long as calm people that don't get angry. So the, the good news is that the Bible actually has a lot to say about this. Like, there's been people for many, many years who have, have struggled with this issue of when to get angry and how to get angry and how to let things go. So this is all over the Bible. And so I want to read you a few uh, verses from Scripture. Uh, starting in uh, James 1, verse 20, uh, James said this, Human anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. So you might feel justified for being angry and you might feel like you are in the right and you have all your ducks in a row because whatever happened, you clearly know something the other person doesn't know. But the truth is that the journey of anger never ends in the destination of holiness. It just doesn't. Scripture clearly says it's not, it's not what God wants. Or I'll give you another example. This is Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 22. Jesus says, I tell you that anybody who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So as Jesus talks about the values of the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount, he is so clear that anger simply doesn't have a place when it comes to kingdom values. Here's how Paul writes it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anger is the easiest way to let Satan live rent-free in your mind. Your anger is a foothold for Satan's activity in your heart. Now here's another one, Colossians chapter 3. Paul says this, But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these 
anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Now, if you think about this verse, just look at, like, like simplify it in your mind. And there's a lot of words there, but I really want you to focus on just these few words here. Paul says, rid yourself of anger. So apparently, you and I actually have some control over this one. If you can get rid of it, then you actually have a choice here. Uh, Sometimes we can believe the lie that we're puppets and we're just dangling on the threads of anger, and once we get angry, there's really nothing that we can do about it, but that's not necessarily true. In fact, I want to give you two strategies this morning of how to deal with with anger, and and you can employ these today, you can employ these this week. And the first one's super simple, and you're going to think it's kind of strange when I say it, but here's the first strategy if you're wanting to deal better with your anger. It's this. It comes from the title of a book uh, by Brent Hansen called Unoffendable, and it's this. Uh, choose to be unoffendable. Just actually make a decision. And I know it sounds crazy because you're thinking you can't just, you can't just make the choice there. Well, that's not necessarily uh, true. Uh, several years ago, I, I, I met this person for the very first time. Her name's Julie Kleeman. She goes to church here. Um, and I remember my first conversation with her. She was really trying hard to pursue this dream of this business, and it was taking a lot of time, it was taking a lot of money, it was taking a lot of energy, and she had a lot of people criticizing her for for doing this. You don't have the time to do this, you shouldn't do this. And so she was getting a lot of discouragement. And I asked her, I said, well, how are you dealing with that? Like, that must be hard when people attack your dream. And I'll never forget what she said. She looked at me and she said, oh, it doesn't bother me because I have an unoffendable heart. And I thought, what? I've never heard anybody say that. Like, you have an unoffendable heart. I didn't even think that was possible. And at that point, I hadn't read this. This is a great book, by the way. I hadn't read this book called Unoffendable by Brent Hansen. But the more I think about it, and the more I even read Scripture, I actually think that Julie is right. I think you can simply make the choice. You know what? I'm going to be unoffendable. In fact, let's just, let's play this out. Maybe today someone's going to say something to you and you're not going to like it. Like it's going to be rude, it's going to be insensitive, it's going to push a button that you have, and you're going to feel that anger rise. Well, here's what you do. I'm going to give you a sentence that you can say in your mind. Here it is. You're going to say, I'm not going to let your dysfunction become my dysfunction. So let's practice this. Someone has just said something super rude to you. Everybody take a deep breath and then say out loud with me, I'm not going to let your dysfunction become my dysfunction. All right, we'll, we'll play this out again. Let's say later today you're on social media and you're scrolling and you read something and the, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. You're like, I can't believe they said that. And you get super mad. Well, again, everybody take a deep breath. Breathe it out. Here's what you're going to say. Say it with me. I'm not going to let your dysfunction become my dysfunction. Like you can choose this. You can actually choose to be unoffendable. In fact, I'll give you an example from the life of Jesus. So John 13, uh, verse 37, uh, Jesus says this. Or no, Peter says this. Peter says, Jesus, I will lay down my very life for you. That's a bold, courageous statement. And Jesus answers, really? Will you really lay your life down for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. All right, you, you talk about like offensive behavior, 
Jesus, uh, arguably his best friend is Peter. And at this point, Peter is going to disown him, call down curses upon Jesus, deny that he even knows Jesus, trample three years of love and affection and generosity and time spent together. I mean, you talk about betrayal. This would hurt. Like, can you imagine if your best friend did something like this to you? I mean, we get mad for far, far less uh, worse things than, than what Peter did to Jesus. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus responds. I find this so interesting. So, so when the Bible was written, it didn't have chapter numbers. It didn't have verse numbers. It didn't even have paragraphs. And so when, when John originally wrote this down, the, the last verse of chapter 13 just flowed into the first verse of chapter 14. And so the way the text would have read, it would have said something like this. You're going to disown me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. My father's house has many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. So in the wake of his best friend's treacherous betrayal, Jesus offers Peter unshakable loyalty. You trash me by disowning me, but I'm going to honor you by saving you. Now, I read that and I think, how can you say that, Jesus? Like, I, I'd be a lot more offended if I was Jesus than, than Jesus clearly was at this moment. I think the way that, the reason that Jesus just lets it roll off his shoulders and doesn't make a big deal about it is, is pretty simple. I simply think that Jesus was unoffendable. He had simply made the choice that nothing anybody does is going to really stick in my heart. But here's the good news. I actually think that you can make the same choice. And I think I can make the same choice. We can choose to be unoffendable. I want to read you an example from this book. It's one of my favorite uh, parts of this book, Unoffendable. So this, this author is a radio talk show host, and he's a blogger, and so he gets a lot of criticism. And he talks about two options for responding to a, to a really angry, uh, critical comment on his blog post. And he says, here's what option one is. 410, see insulting comment from Bob 371 on my blog. 415, stew about it. 420, craft, amazing, thorough, literate, snarky reply to set Bob 371 straight. 430, hit submit and walk away from computer, drop the mic style, all smug and cool. 440, return to computer and delete my smug reply. 441, see that someone has already replied to my smug reply. 442, delete my reply anyway, but write another one. 530, eat dinner with family, but distractedly because I am bugged by the comments on the blog. 545, decide it doesn't matter what people say. I was right. 550, see another blood-boiling response from Big Jerk, formerly known as Bob371. <laughs> 552, decide to write something sort of nice, but still, you know, making my point. 555, see new comment. Someone else, whom I respect, thinks I was being a jerk in my original comment. Respond to that person via email to apologize, but not really, because the jerk formerly known as Bob371 is a bigger jerk. 610, write another comment and commence stewing about the whole thing until 1.30 a.m. Anybody relate to this? Has anybody ever done anything like this? Okay, that's option one. Here's option two. 410, see insulting comment from Bob371 on blog. 415, thank him for it. Point out what I appreciate about it. If I want to continue the conversation, fine, but otherwise it doesn't matter. 420, go play Madden NFL with my daughter, get beat 75 to 0, then eat dinner with fam and laugh about stuff. <laughs> and then the very next sentence says this, 
I have learned that option two is pretty awesome. <laughs> See, you and I have this choice all the time. Option one or option two. In fact, in the next paragraph, he has a question. I read this book two years ago, but this question has really stuck in my mind. He said, here's how he gets through stuff like this. He asked this question. Is Bob 371 a mortal threat to the kingdom? No. Bob 371 is not a mortal threat to the kingdom. God is patient with Bob 371. Here's the deal. Someone's going to say something to you that's going to make you really mad today or tomorrow or this week. And you've got to ask yourself that question. Is so-and-so a threat to the kingdom? And if not, just realize that God is very patient with that person. All that to say, I believe you can choose to be unoffendable. Now, here's a second strategy. John chapter 2. I want to read this verse, uh, verse 24. Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And so this is a situation where uh, the, some people are coming and trying to make Jesus king by force. And he's like not going to entrust himself to them. But this next line is super important. He says this. Jesus did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. So Jesus, one of the things that was so amazing about him is he, like, he understood what was in people. Like he knew it. He knew the good and the bad and the ugly. Like have you ever noticed that when Jesus comes across morally deplorable people, he's never embarrassed, he's never shocked, he's never offended by these people. Now he might disagree with their choices, but he's never offended with the people. So, for example, Luke 7, Jesus at dinner, Pharisee's house, woman comes in. She's a sinner, likely a prostitute. And, and you can just tell by the way she's dressed and the way she's talking, like she is a known quantity. In fact, she's not supposed to be there. And when she shows up, the Pharisees get super angry, just like you or I will. Like, what is she doing here? In fact, here's what the Pharisee says. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of a woman that she is. She is a sinner. So the Pharisee is offended. And you can relate because in your mind, I want you to imagine the kind of person that offends you. Imagine the kind of person, maybe it's the way that they dress or the way they display their sexuality or how they vote or their political view or, or whatever, the signs in their yard. And I want you to imagine that that person comes into your living room. How, how are you going to feel and how are you going to treat that person? You're, you're going to be offended, just like the Pharisee was. But Jesus, even though I'm sure he disagreed with her behavior, she's clearly a sinner. He looks at her, talks to her, offers his peace to her. Like, like Jesus isn't offended by her. And what's amazing is Jesus does this over and over and over in his life. He's on the cross next to a murderer. He's not offended. He's not shocked. He just talks to the guy. Last Supper, Jesus is with an embezzler, Judas Iscariot. He's not embarrassed. He's not shocked. Like, like notice at the Last Supper, here's a conversation that you don't see. You don't see Jesus pulling Andrew aside and saying, Andrew, I just I can't believe what Judas is doing. I mean, if Pilate did it, sure, that, that's one thing. Or if a Pharisee did it, that's one thing. But this is Judas. And he's been with us three years. And, and how dare he embezzle this money? I just can't believe this. What's the world coming to? What, what are your grandkids going to think about this world when it all goes, goes to the pot? Jesus doesn't do that. He washes the guy's feet. Because Jesus has simply learned 
who people are. And so he's not shocked. Like, like, like Jesus, he's just not offended. He's not flustered with fallen people because he knows what's in a person. He knows we're prideful. He knows we're sinful. He knows we're selfish. And so therefore, he's simply not shocked when, when people do what people are going to do. And so here's the second strategy for you this week. It's pretty simple. It's this. Expect fallen people to be fallen people. That's who they are. Like today, tomorrow, sometime this week, sometimes next month, someone's going to say something to you, and they're not going to even mean to hurt your feelings, but they are. And you're going you're to feel attacked. What? How dare they say that? Or they're going to post something that's going to offend you, or they're going to text you something, and you're going to misread the text, and you're going to get angry about it. But when you do, here's what, here's what you can do. Expect fallen people to be fallen people. Do you know why they say those things? Do you know why they write those things? Do you know why they do those things? It's because they're people. They're human beings, just like you and just like me. And if we can expect that out of them, if you, if you can walk into your day tomorrow expecting them to be fallen, then you won't be so shocked when they say these things that are offensive. It's just, it's just who they are. They're a person. They're a person just like you're a person, just like I'm a person. So I used to have two dogs, and the greatest thing they ever did is they, they learned how to catch squirrels in tandem, like velociraptors. It was pretty amazing. Like, this wasn't just a one-time thing. They actually developed a strategy here. And so Oscar, he was the, the athletic, good, nice dog, great attitude. And so he would actually chase the squirrels around the tree and Katie was the fat, grumpy, lazy dog, and she would just sit on the other side of the tree, and Oscar would chase the squirrel and actually swipe the, girl, the, the squirrel off the tree, and then Katie would just, you know, put her paw down and attack the squirrel and kill the squirrel, and then would run away with the squirrel, and Oscar would never get to eat any of the squirrel. And so I watched this happen several times, and I was, I was irritated for several reasons about uh, this strange scenario. Oddly very proud that they could do this, but very irritated and, and very offended. So one day I'm in the kitchen, I look outside, and they're doing it again. They're in their positions, and sure enough, Oscar swipes the squirrel, Katie catches it, and I'm just, I'm done. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I do, my dogs have to stop doing this. So I, I run in the backyard, and I start yelling at Katie, Katie, put the squirrel out. Stop eating the squirrel. It could have rabies. And so then, you know, Katie, she doesn't care what I'm saying, and she starts just running around the yard with the squirrel in her mouth, and so I start chasing her with the squirrel in her mouth yelling the whole time and then I notice strange things start to happen like at first she's got the squirrel's head in her mouth and I can see the whole body and as I keep running I notice that the two front arms eventually disappear and I'm like that's weird and then I keep running and then I notice that the two back legs are disappearing and it looks just like the tail is a massive tongue just flopping out of her mouth and then finally a few minutes later the squirrel's just gone she ate the entire squirrel all the bones all the cartilage as she was running around the backyard. And I was so mad. And so finally I, I gave up the chase and she just sat down and stared at me and I just looked at her and I was like, what? who are you? Like, who would do this? Like, what is wrong with you? And then it dawned on me, I know who would do this. A dog. <laughs> because that's what dogs do. Here's what people do. Zone in for this part. Here's what people do. They mainly think about themselves. They talk often before they think. Sometimes they're pretty rude. They vote for the other guy. 
Sometimes they seek revenge. Sometimes they cut you off on traffic. Did I mention that they usually only think about themselves? <laughs> it's because they're people. They're people. Just like you and just like me, and they're people that Jesus died for. And so I want, I want you to go to the scene of the cross, and I want you just to think about all the people surrounding Jesus. You, you've got the ruthless soldiers. You've got the confused disciples. You've got a grieving mom. You've got a really guilty friend. You've got a convicted murderer. You've got a pacifist. You've got a zealot. And Jesus, Jesus dies for all of them. All of them. See, here's really one really cool thing about when you can expect people to be fallen people, when you can make that your expectation, then guess what's going to surprise you? Grace. You will be pleasantly surprised when you see stories of grace. And that's really what's happening at, at the cross. It's amazing what Jesus is doing here. You see, in the story of sin, you and I are, are complicit in that story. Because our sinful thoughts and our hidden motives and our hateful hearts and our judgmental attitudes, we have caused uncalculable damage to other people. We have caused immense grief to other people by our selfishness. We have caused immense grief to the heart of our God by our sinfulness. We're all in the same boat. And what does Jesus do? Does he fold his arms and roll his eyes and say, so disappointed in Phil. I mean, come on, he's a preacher. He should know better. Yelling at those kids, come on, Phil. That's not what Jesus does. He says, I'm going to take your sins and your sins and your sins and his sins and her sins and their sins, individual sins, corporate sins, and he puts them onto himself. And then he quietly, submissively, lovingly, willingly goes to the cross and says, I'm taking it. I'm taking it all onto myself. And I'm going to let all these sins be condemned in my own flesh in order to set these beautiful and broken people free. See, the story of grace is actually amazing when you think about it. And that's what I want you to do this week is I just want you to swim in the story of grace because when you fully realize what God did for you, you don't really have as much energy to be angry. Like, I'll, I'll give you one more theoretical. Let's say tomorrow you're driving home from the hospital with a loved one who's been battling COVID for two months and they're finally clear. And you're driving home and someone cuts you off in traffic. Are you going to be that upset about that person? Absolutely not. Because you'll be so full of gratitude at the gift of having your loved one back. You see, when we really receive grace as a gift, we become less angry people. And so my encouragement for you this week is swim in the story of grace. And what you'll find is you just won't be as angry. So we're going to sing this amazing song about peace. And while we sing this song, I really want you to think about your own anger this week and go ahead and start praying right now that God will make your heart unoffendable. Pray that right now.
But as we sing, if you're ready to give your life to this movement, to this Christ that goes to this cross, you can come tell me about that. If you're in Fellowship Central, you go tell uh, the representative there at Fellowship Central. If you're at home, there's going to be a number on the screen. You call into that number and we'll be happy to help you in whatever way that you need. If you want prayers, we'd love to pray for you uh, this morning. Let's stand and let's sing. So